So there was a little bit of introduction. I was born and raised in Seattle here. I'll just give you a little bit more. And then I moved to Portland, Oregon in the year 2000 uh, and married Brian the year after. We have two kids, Chance and Paxton. Any other boy moms, boy parents out there? Yes, our house smells so good. It is so great. Praise God for that smell. So Chance, uh, here's a picture of them right here. So Chance is my oldest, the one that's standing like he owns the world. Um, and then there's Paxton. So this, he's a senior this year. He's a freshman in this year, and that's my husband, Brian. I want to point out this photo because I said, we are taking photos. We're going to put them on Christmas cards. This is a thing that grandparents love, right? Dress yourself, boys. Chance said, I will. And can you just look at his shoes? Those are Light Lightning McQueen Crocs. I didn't buy those. He, he like set himself up on this contest and he won them and he got them in a size too small and they light up when you walk like, like a toddler. And he still went with this. He just said, no, I, I'm going to wear them and they're going to light up and I'm going to wear them for this photo opportunity for the rest of history to, for people to see. So, I mean, this is my family. It just gives a little bit of a hint of their personalities and he, just a delight. I, I just love being a mom. I love being a wife. I love people. Uh, so, I've been in ministry for over two decades. I started out as a worship pastor, uh, director, and I started for 17 years. That's what I did. And then as I got older, I thought, I don't want to... Uh, become, you know, 90 years old and still trying to be relevant. So I uh, retired myself, but God said, not yet. I'm, I got some stuff for you. So I ended up sliding into executive pastorship as a campus pastor. I am at National Community Church, again, Northern Virginia campus of the DC location. So you can understand, I'm sure, with all of the political stuff that's been going on, we're right in the heart in our nation's capital. So we have, if you think of me sometimes, just pray. Pray for our people. We, we want to love well in a place that is so dualistic and so opposite ends of the spectrum. But man, I love, I love people so much. And so getting them to, to do that. I, uh, I oversee a, multi, a department, many departments of things that happen at our church. Uh, I, I cannot believe I get the privilege to oversee people that are honestly just better at, than I am at doing what they do. And that's why I'm here today, because they've got church covered at home. So uh, you can also pray for them, because who knows what I left them dealing with. So ultimately, I'm a huge nerd. Uh, I am an academic. My background is psychology, and then I went into theology, which honestly I use on a daily basis doing what I do. I'm a naturally curious person, and as I continued reading scripture, the more I read it, the more curious I was, the more questions I had than answers. I don't know about you, but some of you may, as you get older, there's more wisdom. The more I learn, I realize <laughs> the less I know. So God be with me today. I believe the Holy Spirit's going to cover this, so if I say something that is not right, God will We'll cover that there. But the good news in my nerdiness is that I dive deep with reckless abandon. The bad news is I end up taking good people like you along with me on the ride. So it's an adventure today. Are you guys ready to do this? 
All right, here we go. Today we're going to dive deep into James chapter 2, specifically for, uh, verses 14 to 17. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along. We're also going to have it up on the screen. So if you don't have it, no worries. Let's read together. I'm coming out of the new revised standard version. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, many of us have read this many times. This is the reading of the Word. We read this, and we think, oh, we understand it. So in the whole book of James, this section has been noted as the most theologically significant and also the most polemical and controversial. So, of course, I'm going to dive into that with you guys. Uh, if you don't like what I say, <laughs> I won't be here next week. You can write a letter to, to Pastor Dan. I wanted to put all of this out there, though, uh, mostly because in the next 30 minutes or so, if you find yourself struggling or grappling with this, feeling uncomfortable, I want you to understand you're in good company. I feel this on a regular basis. So before we dive into the de this text, let's give some historical context here. So about 90% of the ancient Greco-Roman population were working class poor. They were soldiers, shippers, they were dealers, they're artisans, they're traders, they are landless peasants. There were the elites that accounted for maybe 10%, and then there were the imperial elites that were the 1%. Very similar to what we have today, except we have a much, more middle a much larger middle class. Now, honor and good, as we speak of it, were associated with power and status. Honor defined a person's feelings of self-worth and public acknowledgement of that worth. It stood for a person's place in society. Honor was central to a family and community identity and always connected one's social status, uh, whether it was in a rural village or the emperor's household. Honor was ultimately uh, intimately tied to the structure of power relations within the family and division of labor. So honored people in society never did manual work. No dishes, no yard work, no picking up after yourself. Additionally, the rich and poor of that time were solely economic terms. So it was more about the ability to maintain honor and status. And the ancient world believed that good and honor was limited, which means if you were to gain honor, it was usually at the expense of someone else. James' letter here addresses the members of the church in this culture and context, whose minds and hearts had been submitted to this culture by the values and ideology of their surrounding society. And what James does here is constructs a positive identity and ideology for his audience. He platforms the non-elites who care for the poor among them, and he calls them honorable. Imagine, oof, the drama there. What James writes is extreme, he, well, he writes extremely controversial um, in that time, countercultural. And because of the title of honorable and good belonging to only the elites and not the com common folk, this stirred up 
tensions. Therefore, this idea that the poor could be honorable and good challenged the dominant culture of the Roman Empire. So in uh, the Greco-Roman world, being a slave, by the way, very different how they did slave in ancient times than how we in, as Americans did slavery. So try to take that context out of your mind, okay? Slavery back then was better than being poor. Because as a slave, you could climb your way up the social and economic ladder. As a slave, uh, people that came upon hard times could voluntarily submit themselves into enslavement as a way of paying off their debt and moving forward. You could even gain Roman citizenship as a foreigner through slavery. The poor ranked so much lower than these slaves that they didn't even have the option of being enslaved. That's how different it was. And because of that, the poor had no options. And charity at that time was not practiced. So now that we have some cultural context, let's dive into a few verses. So James 2, 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? Okay, so as this slide is up, it says good in Greek is ophelos. It's translated as profit or gain. Faith is translated from the word pisti. It's a secular term in Greek that's translated better as trustworthiness or steadfastness, loyalty. The word pisti was often referred to as a banking credit. Um, so something for us to know, we in the modern world view faith as inward and psychological, but this is not what pisti means in the cultural world. What James meant was different, okay? So, and then there's the word works here, erga, is un understood here as good deeds. To be doers of the word, not just hearers. The call is to put faith into action, to be a doer of faith, because faith that is alive is one that demonstrates itself in brotherly love. So let's look at it again in a more literal translation. It says, what is to gain, my brothers and sisters, if you say you are trustworthy but do not practice good deeds, can faith or trust save you? There are two questions that are really being asked here in this text. The first is this, what good is faith that is unaccompanied by works? Now, James is not arguing that works must um, be added to faith. Rather, he's suggesting that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. Faith is not supplemented, but defined as part of the wholeness in your life. The issue is not of faith itself, but that faith has no work. So this kind of faith in biblical terms is no faith at all. Faith in ancient times was not tied to morality or how you viewed your neighbor. However, justice was defined relationally, how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. And this takes on the form of charity, which was a newer concept of the ancient world. And the early church was winning market share in this because they were actually doing this. They were caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sick, the outcast, the foreigner. They were caring for the marginalized. James is reminding his readers that faith 
is not abstract. Faith requires a component in action. So when asking this first question, what good is a faith that is unaccompanied by works? The answer is no good. The second question that uh, presents itself in this verse is this, uh, is such a faith able to save? The way we view the term saved or salvation today is very much used differently in the way they said it back then. So to us, it's a past tense, like when I was 12, I was saved. Salvation in ancient times was actually a future tense, as in the end of age, and it was believed it was coming soon. The Greek word literally means safety or to protect. However, even though salvation was used in future tense, the work of salvation is in the present, in today. Faith without works cannot save you. The prophets of the Old Testament, above all, criticized the faith and ritual actions of their fellow Israelites because they neglected their social responsibilities. Similarly, myself, professing my faith and practicing my personal sacred rhythms, though it is very good and important that we have these rhythms, is not sufficient. What is required is a life of good deeds in action, that embrace, that embracing love and concern for others. Let's flash back real quick to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew when Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. The will of the Father is to love God and love others. That's our greatest commandment. When we call Jesus Lord, are we really submitting ourselves to the lordship and commandments of Jesus, to the rule and the reign of Jesus? Now, obviously today, especially in our American culture, we do not have lords. And even the cultures, you know, overseas that have lords, their understanding is a totally different view than it was back then. We put, to put ourselves under the lordship of someone means that everything in life that we build, every decision we, we make, every breath we breathe, everything we say is in the building of our Lord's kingdom. It's not just that we believe in Jesus, but that we have dedicated every part of ourselves to Him. Now, if we take a beat and give ourselves just a moment to reflect, can we honestly say that we have put every part of our lives in the building of God's kingdom? Or is it in our own empire? Or maybe the country's empire? When James goes to answer the second question, is such a faith able to save? The answer is a resounding no. So let's move to the beginning of the next verse here. If a brother or sister is naked, the word here is gunoi, and lacks daily food, this is ephemerotrophes. Okay, everyone say this with me. We're gonna learn Greek today, okay? Everyone say gunoi, gunoi. Try it again, gunoi. Gunoi. All right. Now, ephemeru, ephemeru, nice, trophes. Guys, we're all fluent now. Look at us, learning languages in church. Who would have thunk? 
Gunoi doesn't actually mean naked. It means poorly clothed, like maybe you're in your undergarments or it's tattered, you're limited. Ephemerotrophes means habitually underfed, constantly falling short of the daily supply of food that will sustain life and your health. So if we read it this way, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is habitually underfed, if we read it this way and and we apply it to today, it, it paints a picture of those in our marginalized communities, in our minority groups, maybe our friends experiencing homelessness. Also, fun fact, this has nothing to do with anything, but so often we say, oh, he's homeless. The proper term really is, that's not a character flaw of theirs. They are someone, they are someone in our community that is currently experiencing homelessness. Let's not categorize a whole group of people that are inexperienced, saying that that's what they're doomed for forever, okay? So our friends that are experiencing homelessness, this is actually not a new concept. This has been addressed many times in the Bible. Let's go back to the Old Testament where they would fast in the name of worship, but while they were fasting, they were actively oppressing people. Let's read this in Isaiah 58. Starting in verse 6, it says, Is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You you shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. There's an order to things. God is saying, care first for the other. God says, fight injustice. Feed the oppressed, or feed the hungry. Free the oppressed. Clothe the naked. Bring the homeless into your homes. Okay, hold on one second here. Let's just... uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that on your way home you pick up someone that is experiencing homeless. Let's be, you know, let, let's be uh, wise in this choice. But how are we enveloping others? The marginalized, the easily forgettable in our community. I'll just go into the next verse here. In James 2, 16, it says, and one of you says to them, I'm pointing this out because it's weird. Let's nerd out. Not that we haven't been nerding out this whole time. Let's just continue nerding out, okay? I promise I won't stay long here and hang in there with me. Here's what it looks like in Greek. It says, epe de tis autois exhumon. I'm not going to make you repeat that. Epe de tis autois exhumon. Now, directly translated from Greek into English, it says, tell if someone they from you clear as mud. Tell us someone they from you. I point this out because we clearly miss something here in the English language, right? So, tis here means someone. Autois means them, and humon means you. Hang in there. There's a juxtaposition of these three pronouns here. The word of or ex in Greek that sits between someone and them helps specify the partitive idea 
in the you of Humon. Okay, I've lost a bunch of you. What this means is this. What does it mean in English other than tell if someone they from you? When you read this in Greek, taking into consideration the order of the words, James is communicating this. From among your community. From among your community. James is saying, and what if someone from among your community is poorly clothed and habitually underfed? What are you going to do about it? The next time someone says, the Bible clearly says this, just respond with, tell if uh, someone they from you. They'll be clear. So let's read all of 16 here. Someone from among your community is poorly clothed and habitually underfed, and one of, them, uh, one of you says to them, go in peace. Keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? Why would James tell them to tell the poor, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill? Clearly, they don't have clothing, shelter, or food, right? Great question. I'd love to answer that. Thanks for asking. James is being sarcastic. Oh, the Bible is full of sarcastic moments, and I live for it. It's so fun. In fact, go in peace or peace be with you in this is common biblical blessing found in the Old Testament. But by this time in culture, many, many years later, the term go in peace functioned as a religious cover for the failure to act. It's kind of compared to our today, bless your heart. You don't really mean bless your heart or thoughts and prayers, because we may pray and thought, have thoughts in the moment, but then we don't really act on it, right? It's not that blessings and prayer aren't important. It's just that no action is connected to our words. The verb keep warm and eat your fill in Greek here expresses a pious belief that God will relieve the needs of the poor. Again, thoughts and prayers to which James responds. What good is that? What good is it? Failure to provide for an obvious need not only harms those that are in need, but it raises the question of the hearts of those who fail to act to relieve that need. Jesus talks about this exact issue in the parable of the judgment of the nations. It's a separation of the sheep and the goats. In Matthew uh, 25, Jesus tells us that that action is imperative in how we demonstrate concern for others. So uh, starting in verse 42 here, it says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you gave me, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And when Jesus' listeners asked, when do we not care for you? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Jesus goes on to say that God will grant entrance into his kingdom based on the works of charity, but will dismiss from his presence all those who fail to relieve the needs of the destitute. James is reiterating the teachings of Jesus. He says, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. 
the words faith by itself or faith alone is never mentioned in James 2.17 because we are not saved by faith alone. Isolated faith is a useless faith. It is not only outwardly inoperative, but it is inwardly dead. Living out your faith is acting to care for the impoverished, the oppressed, and the marginalized, and those that do not have the same resources as we have. Jesus and Paul never tried to change the nation's politics. Jesus never tried to topple Caesar. He just went out and actively lived a non-violent, called life. So Chance, my oldest, who's a senior, when he was in sixth grade, uh, we had just moved to Oklahoma and starting a new, new world. And this is the second time he started school because it was the middle of the school year. And sixth grade was kind of a weird year. Everybody's a little weird then. If you remember when you were in sixth grade, just trying to figure out life, right? So we, we are moving into a new house and we're, we're, you know, getting all the school paperwork done. And I fill up his lunch uh, account so he can go get lunch. And I'm thinking, okay, we're good to go. He goes to school. A week, no, two weeks in, it, we get an alert that his lunch account is like low. He's got $2 left. And I'm like, how did that happen? What? You know, it's fine. I probably missed it. There's a lot going on. So my husband, Brian, and I refill it to take care of him for the whole month. A week later, another alert. Your amount, your food amount is low. Your, your account is low. And of course, uh, I'm on a pastor salary, so I just think, oh, what is this child doing? What is he eating? What? Is he just, is he eating his life away, just squandering our money? How dare he? Does he not know what we do? Does he not know how hard I work for this? I am infuriated. So, of course, we wait for him to come home. But you know what? I am practicing patience. And he comes in, and I said, honey, my husband, I sit him down, honey, we just filled this. What is going on? And he said, oh, mama, I am so sorry. I, you know, there are these two kids that I've never seen eat lunch. And I just thought, I have it. Why not buy their lunch? And I just kept buying their lunch. <laughs> I'm the best mom ever. I've trained my kids so good. In that moment, I went from being angry to being relieved that my son understands this concept of taking care of others. Immediately, Brian and I were like, we're just gonna fill your lunch account for the rest of your, do whatever you want with it. It's fine, just do it. At the age of 11, my son saw the need of someone else that he could meet. Never mind that it was not his own money, it was mine. It's fine, he met a need. I'm gonna support that to the end of time. He showed us what it was like. He taught us how to look up and out that day. He taught me and Brian what it was to, ge to generously reflect the image of an irrationally generous God. It's not about doing what chance did. 
it's not about doing what they did in ancient times, but it's about how God is calling us, you and me, to put our faith into action in our current culture and context, and all of us have a different context. Because in God's kingdom, we live in response to His command to love God first and foremost, and then to love others. The question is, are we working toward God's kingdom or our own empire? So often we look at the gravity of what's happening in the world and we become overwhelmed. There's a lot. There's so much need and I'm only one person. God, how am I supposed to do this? So we either get anxious or we totally withdraw. Very normal. But if you look at it in taking action to help, what if we step back and we looked at it one person at a time? One day at a time one situation at a time. My guess is if we looked at it that way, it would be less overwhelming because what was once impossible becomes community in action and it becomes reconciled. Church, we have a lot of work to do. Faith without works is dead. We do not need a new word. We need a now word. Howard Thurman says it this way. He says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs is a people who have come alive. Church, let's live alive. Let's live for life. So today I want to close today by reciting together out loud, as we already have, the prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer. So if, you'll, if you will uh, recite with me, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways in the glory of your name. Amen.